We will be looking at James 3 as our text today, as you see in the outline that was inserted in your program. But we'll allude to some verses in chapter 1 in order to set the context. Many of you know the broadcast journalist Britt Hume, formerly White House correspondent for ABC News for the last several years. He's been employed by Fox News. Until 2008, he hosted their evening program called Special Report. His son, Sandy, was a Washington journalist as well. And he was a journalist of some renown. In fact, in 1997, he broke the story of a plan by some Republican Congress, congressional leaders to oust then-Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. But in February of that following year, Sandy Hume committed suicide. And over a decade after Sandy's suicide, on the occasion of his 2008 departure from Special Report and as he embarked on a semi-retirement, Brid Hume commented on part of the impact of his son's death. And he said this, I want to pursue my faith more ardently than I have done. I'm not claiming it's impossible to do that when you work in this business, but I was kind of a nominal Christian for the longest time. When my son died, I came to Christ in a way that was very meaningful to me. If a person is a Christian and tries to face up to the implications of what you say you believe, it's a pretty big thing. If you do it part-time, you're not really living it. And that's what the book of James is about, real faith. Or, as we have seen, the word faith in the New Testament is belief, real, authentic, genuine belief. And the book of James provides a number of benchmarks that indicate whether or not what we claim to believe is indeed real and genuine and authentic. And so chapter 1 speaks of faith being tested by its response to difficult circumstances, to trials. And then beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1, faith is tested by its response to the Word of God, with verse 18 telling us that it was through the Word of truth that we were given life, if indeed we have a relationship with God through Jesus. And because it is the Word through which we've been made spiritually alive, then verse 19 of chapter 1 says we should be eager to hear it. And verse 21 of chapter 1 says we should humbly accept it, receive it. And then verse 22 says we should do what it tells us. So one problem that James seeks to correct is indifference to the teaching of the Word of God and the changes that we should be making in our lives because of that teaching. But then he addresses another very important danger. And that is that we might begin doing what the Word says as we're told in verse 22 of chapter 1, but we could be easily satisfied with doing only part of it. After all, nobody's perfect, so if I get the big stuff, the highlights, that's better than nothing. And so if the Bible says to read the Bible and I start doing that, that's great. If the Bible says to pray, I start doing that. 
The Bible says to attend church. I do that. The Bible says to give, so I participate in that regularly. In short, I do religious stuff. And I figure that as a result of that, I can be confident that I have a relationship with God. That what I say I believe is indeed real, genuine, authentic. And to that, James says pointedly in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, verse 26 uses this word religious and religion. One commentator says James applies the designation religious to an individual who carefully performs religious ceremonies and who feels satisfied that as a result he's obedient to the demands of the Word. I had the privilege of speaking in the chapel at our daughter's school just two days ago, and I preached to them from that passage. And I told the young people that you could paraphrase that passage, verse 26 of James chapter 1, this way. James uh, 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he has a relationship with God because of what he does, yet is not careful with his words, does not demonstrate compassion for the needy, and does not operate according to a biblical set of values, then he's dangerously mistaken. And even the spiritual exercises he does are meaningless. So a relationship with God is deeper than just doing the right stuff. And the remaining four chapters of the book of James flesh out these three things that are given in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. The way we talk, our compassion for those in need, and our relationship to the world and its values. Now in the last two messages, we've seen that chapter 2 deals with the second of those three, compassion for the needy. The end of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, worldliness is going to be addressed. And in chapter 3 that we're going to look at today and again in chapter 5, the way we talk, the way we use our tongues, as chapter 1 verse 26 says, that's the subject. Today we're going to see the central key role that our words play in our spiritual condition. We won't get to all or even most of the passages that deal with that in chapter 3, but let's read them together, verses 1 through 12 of James chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. 
Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Let's ask God to help us as we look at His Word. Father, as always, every moment of every day, we need Your aid. And especially as we seek to focus our minds upon the truth of Your Word, we need You to open our hearts, clear our minds, and help us to to remove the distractions that we came into this room with, to focus our attention upon the truth of Your Word and to be eager hearers that will be changed as a result. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible speaks early and often about the key role that communication plays in the kind of people that we are. On the occasion of the first sin of the human race, near the very beginning of your Bible, words were used toward a sinful end. When God confronted Adam about what he had done, Adam said this, The woman you put here with me, She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now you notice I have you emphasized. Because Adam is sinning in his words as he blames God. The God, now hear this, the God who gave him the ability to communicate. He now uses that ability, turns on God, and blames God. And throughout the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, The issue of how we misuse our ability to communicate is often mentioned. In the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, we read these words. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Now, notice in that passage, all of those phrases are in quotation marks. And the reason is that those are all quotes from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And so, from the very beginning, we have misused, as our first parents have and have now passed on to their progeny, us, we have misused this ability that God has given us to communicate so that throughout Old Testament history, things like this are said and are reiterated in the New Testament of your Bible. When the prophet Isaiah was given a vision that provided a glimpse of the majesty and the holiness of God, Isaiah saw in stark contrast his own sinfulness. And I want you to notice Isaiah's response to that vision. 
He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Now you think of all of the things that he could have focused on. He says, I'm an unclean man in the way I talk. And the people around me, all of them, as part of God's chosen nation, they are people of unclean lips as well. God gave us the ability to communicate in words as part of His image in us. We alone in creation communicate in words. Other creatures communicate, but only humans engage in propositional communication. And it's a grand gift that has great potential for good. But after the entrance of sin into the world through our first parents, passed on to each of us, there's even greater occurrence of evil with our mouths. And that reality that we as sinners use our ability to communicate in distorted ways, in ways not intended by God, causes James to warn us about how and about how often we speak. James, in chapter 3, wants us to recognize a number of things about the way we use this God-given but sin-tainted ability. And I have those things outlined for you, inserted in your program. There are seven of them there. And we're not going to get to all seven. In fact, we might get to the first two. We'll definitely get to the first one. And then we'll continue. But James warns us that we must first recognize the responsibility of communication. The responsibility of communication. Verse 1 again, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, of course, this is not saying that there should be no teachers in the church. In fact, you'd have to have a teacher to teach you that there should be no teachers. So there always have to be teachers, and the Bible gives great weight to the role of teaching and teachers in the church, as we're going to see. And remember, as we saw many weeks ago at the beginning of our series, that James addressed this five-chapter letter to professing Christians who were of Jewish descent. And so the book is addressed in chapter 1 and verse 1 to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, in Jewish culture of New Testament times, the teacher or the rabbi was treated in ways that caused many to desire that position. And so that's one of the reasons now James is having to say, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Because rabbis and teachers were set on a pedestal. In fact, one commentator says, everywhere a rabbi went, he was treated with great respect. It was actually believed that a man's duty to his rabbi exceeded his duty to his parents because his parents only brought him into the life of this world, but his teacher brought him into the life of the world to come. It was actually said that if a man's parents and a man's teacher were captured by an enemy, the teacher must be ransomed first. If rabbi and parents needed help, it was a duty to help the rabbi first. Now, it was true that a rabbi was not allowed to take money for teaching, and he was supposed to support his bodily needs by working at a trade. 
But it was held that it was especially pious and meritorious to take a rabbi into your house and to support him with every care. And so as a result of that, as a result of that culture, you had many people who desired to have that pedestal position of teacher or, or rabbi. And you see this in Jesus' interaction with the Jewish religious leaders when he walked the earth. He said of them, Everything they do is done for men to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. And so in Scripture, you have people who are named, actually, memorialized for 2,000 years now since the closing of the New Testament as people who desired because of their selfish ambition, places of honor. One such is a man named Diotrephes. And this is what the Bible simply says of him. Diotrephes loves to be first. So the allure of position is something that attracts those who want the adulation, but often want the adulation without the work and the burden. I've seen this in church life. I've seen people come and go who want position. They want position without demonstrating the requisite character qualities that God says have to be there in order to be recognized as a teacher of God's people. People who want to sort of be consultants for God. You know, I'm just kind of the go-to guy. I'm in the know. People come and talk to me. I pontificate. I really enjoy that. But when it gets messy, I can just kind of go off and do what I really like to do. saw an illustration of this in the life of a pastor friend in Canada. His dad is a deacon at his church. Now that would be, dad's a deacon, you're the pastor. And he told me, most of my deacons are unqualified to be deacons, including my dad. I said, well, why does your dad continue to be a deacon? He said, he just likes to know what's going on. See, there are many people like that who just like to know what's going on, let everybody know they know what's going on so that they can pontificate. Now, I'm going to go on, but let me just stop long enough to say, particularly for the sake of you who might be new here, we don't have that with our deacons. And I thank God for that. And one of the testimonies of God's grace that I mentioned last Sunday night at our celebration dinner was that God has given us an outstanding group of deacons to form our leadership team. But James warns us that not many of you should presume to be teachers. You should not lust after the position and to be known as the go-to guy or gal. In my own mind, as I understand Scripture... I really believe there should be a genuine internal reluctance to be thrust forward. But God says He does call people to do this. And once God makes clear His intention, then indeed, those who have been called to do that, we should lead and teach and preach with all that God has given us. But it requires a humility to say, Lord, I will only do this if that's what you have called me to do, if that's what you have for me to do, 
not to fulfill my own selfish ambition. And the command of verse 19 of chapter 1 that tells us to be slow to speak, remember, quick to hear, eager to hear, but slow to speak, in order to be willing to be slow to speak, to keep your peace, to learn more than, than teach. In order to do that, it requires the humility of verse 21 of chapter 1, where we're told to humbly accept or receive the word, of, the word implanted in you. We should be reluctant to speak unless compelled. And the reason we should be is because we know the dangers, and James is reminding us of those dangers. He says in verse 1, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So who should be qualified to do that in an official capacity in the church? Well, God has not left us to wonder about that. God has given very clear qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 for those who would lead God's church. And then he has placed the responsibility upon the church to examine those who would be leaders of his church to ensure that they meet those qualifications. And then to show that that is indeed the case, to have a public ceremony of ordaining, setting apart a man for the purpose of leading God's people, in particular teaching God's people. That's why a few years ago, 2009, We had a public ordination service for Pastor Matt, having examined him and his life and that of Erica and their family over a few years. And seeing that, he met those qualifications, setting him apart for that work. So serious is it that those who teach will be judged more strictly, that those who have then been set apart as official teachers for God's people, myself, Pastor Matt, any of us who deign to take that role. Just be very careful about for whom we preach and teach. One pastor was asked, for whom do you prepare your sermons? He was told, after all, you know, most people only comprehend at an eighth grade level. So for whom do you prepare? And his answer was, you know, first and foremost, I prepare my sermons for God. Remembering that first and foremost, it is before God that we teach and we preach. And yet, too many take pulpits and platforms to lead God's church simply because they love to hear themselves talk rather than loving to hear the truth going forward. I set this test for myself. And for any of you who aspire to teach, and we're going to see in just a minute, that's not just official teaching in the church. But any of you who aspire to teach in any capacity, especially God's people in his church. I set this test for myself. I called it the the screen test or the wall test. And I asked myself beginning years ago, what if it was possible for me to teach and preach behind a wall or behind a screen And nobody ever knew who was doing it. The question is, would you still try as hard? And if the answer to that is no, then you can be sure 
that you're playing to the audience and for the adulation of, of the audience. So friends, those not called should not seek to teach. And those who teach should not seek glory. Now, you might be inclined to tune out at this point, and perhaps you've already done that and I can't get you back. Since you may have never taught in the church and you may have no aspiration to do that, but it's not only talking about those in official teaching positions. That's its primary application. It certainly includes that. But in the setting in which James' readers lived, it was possible for many people to presume to get up and teach. Remember, this is a Jewish audience. And if you look at, just, just look at chapter 2 and verse 2, where it says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also come in, comes in. Now, the reason I've had you look at that is look at the words, your meeting. Those words are a translation of a Greek word, and see if you know the English word that we get from it. Synagoge. We get synagogue from that. And so James has these people, and he says, when you come together at your synagogue meeting, these are folks of Jewish descent who have, who have come to Jesus, and they would have their Christian worship and fellowship meetings and no doubt carry with them some of the customs of the synagogue. And one of those customs was that people could stand up and speak. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was, was handed to him. So he goes into the synagogue. He's perceived as someone who has something to say. Indeed, of course, he did. And he's allowed to do that. But that happened in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and of Barnabas as well. The Bible says Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. We find this happening in the first century church in your New Testament. The church at Corinth in particular apparently practiced. Anybody got something to say? So much so that when you come to chapter 14 of the letter to the first letter to the church at Corinth. Paul has to give instructions. Everything should be done decently and in order. Because when you come together, everybody has a song or a message. And so, in your New Testament, there were official and unofficial teachers as well. And the principle here, friends, in James chapter 3 and verse 1, is one in which all of us should take away the application that we should each be very, very careful in how we speak, to whom we speak, and about what we speak. Whenever you talk, you are giving counsel of one form or another. Now, the Bible encourages regular folk to give counsel. So in Romans 15, I'm convinced that you are competent to counsel, competent to instruct 
one another. But be careful in what you say and judicious in how you use your words, not presumptuous in the word of verse 1 of chapter 3. Now why? We who teach will be judged more strictly. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to their authority, because they serve you as men who will give an account. And verse 2 of chapter 3 elaborates on the reason we should be extremely careful. The NIV says we all stumble in many ways, but there's an important word missing there. Actually, in the Greek text, it says the very first word is for. We all stumble in many ways. So, So why should we not presume to be teachers? Because for we all stumble in all sorts of ways. Now, when it says stumble, you could get the idea that I just got my words wrong, I got tongue-tied, made a mistake. That is not the way stumble is used in your New Testament. You remember in 1 Corinthians 8 when it talks about meat that's been previously offered to idols? And the question is, should I participate in eating this meat that had been previously offered and sacrificed to an idol? And Paul says, don't do anything that would cause your brother to what? Stumble, right? Stumble is being used to sin. That would cause your brother to sin by violating his conscience in what he does. And so you could read here, here's why you should avoid this. Because for we all sin in many, many ways. And in particular, with our tongues. And so if you're going to be the go-to guy or gal, in whatever capacity, if you're going to desire to set yourself up as someone who, who knows and can, and can pontificate, James is saying be very careful because it is so easy, so very easy for us to sin even in our teaching. Now, notice the way I have phrased this in the outline. I've said James wants us to recognize the responsibility of communication. And you notice all of the points end with communication. And I could have said the responsibility of speaking because that's primarily what James is talking about here. Those who he wrote this to didn't have copies of this letter themselves. It had to be read to them. And that's why it says to be eager hearers of the word. And so it was, it, it was speaking as the means by which the communication was, was done. But I say communication rather than speech for this reason. We live in a day in which we can communicate in lots of ways that are not verbal, that are not speaking. And James is telling us that God gave us that ability and we need to be extremely careful in how we use it in whatever forum. Facebook, Twitter, email, blogging, whatever it is. Now, why would people deign to say, I want to be the teacher, I want to be the person that that folks go to, I like to let people know all that, that I know, and let them know that I know? 
Why would people do that? Well, at heart, it's arrogance, it's pride. We want to be seen that way. I've seen it in official capacities in preaching. I call it the arrogance of extemporaneous preaching. Now, here's what I mean by that. I have seen particularly young guys who think, I've got this gift to talk, and therefore, and I know the Bible quite well, so I can just get up and I can just chat. There's an arrogance about that that says that I don't have to put a lot of time into preparing and choosing my words carefully, that I can just get up and speak extemporaneously. And we all suffer from that sort of arrogance, that sort of pride. It manifests itself self in different ways. But ask yourself, ask yourself, friends, why do I feel the need to talk? Why do I need to feel the need to Twitter that point, say that thing, write that note? Why do I need to be heard? Why do I need to have the last word? And ultimately, it is our arrogance and our pride which flies in the face of what verse 21 says, the humility to accept and receive what God says and learn and learn much more than we teach. That's why the songwriter was correct to say, take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be, now notice, filled with messages from thee. Filled with messages from God. And so I will only speak as I have processed what God has said and then use it for the good of those who hear. Now verse 2 says, We all sin then in many ways. And because of that, be very careful about how you use this gift of communication in whatever capacity, official or unofficial. And then he says, If anyone is never at fault in what he says, He's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. You all remember who James is? He's the brother of the Lord Jesus, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And he had the privilege of growing up in a home where he saw a perfect man who always spoke truth, who always spoke what was best for those here. Christians need to censor their speech for the glory of God. That's why the book of Proverbs says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Now, I mentioned at the beginning Isaiah. And Isaiah has this vision of the holiness of God. And he sees his own sin in contrast. And immediately he thinks of his his mouth and his communication. As As we end today, one point out of seven. So if you'll come for seven more weeks, we'll be done with this sermon. Six more weeks. As we conclude, I want to give you a note of hope as you think about how you use your tongue and how thoughtlessly you and I use this communication ability. 
Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw him in his, in his holy state. And he saw in contrast his own sinfulness. Immediately thought about how he misuses this God-given ability to communicate and how all of those around him do that as well. But then the Bible goes on to say this. Our merciful God never leaves us where we are. And the Bible says, one of the angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar of sacrifice to God for sin. And he takes with tongs, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You say, Pastor, I've never given much thought to how I use my words and the ubiquity of my words and, and, and how they just roll off of my tongue. Perhaps it's very overt, stumbling, sinful ways like gossip and slander. Perhaps it's just a manifestation of, of pride. I always want people to know that I'm in the know. And I'm the guy to come to. Perhaps it's just, it's I teach, but I don't treat it with the respect that God's Word requires. Any number of ways that we sin in the way we use this communication vehicle. But understand, if you've never thought about that, if you've never been challenged about that, and you have been this morning, there is hope for you in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, and that word confess literally means say, use your mouth (laughs) to say the same thing God says. And if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to bow before the Lord. And as we do, I invite anyone who came into this room without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to begin right now. Jesus is the one who has ultimately atoned for our sins on the sacrifice that is the cross of Calvary. And His blood covers all of our sins past, present, and future. Our sins of thought, our sins of speech, our sins of action, our sins of omission, failing to think as we ought and talk as we ought and do what we ought. Jesus' blood covers all of that, and you can have that covering for all of your sin right now if you realize you're a sinner. and Recognize that Jesus paid the price for your sin, did what you could not do, He lived an absolutely perfect life, and so he lived the life that you should live. He died the death that you deserve. Repent of your sin. Lord, I want to follow you with my life and receive Jesus by praying to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to take my life. I want to follow you. Those of you who have come to Christ and realize that you have flippantly used this gift that God has given for your glory rather than his, We can confess that to him now. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for your word yet again that always convicts me of my sin. Lord, I struggle with sin every moment of every day. 
I struggle with my own pride. I struggle with the manifestation of that pride in the way I talk, in what I want to get out of what I say. I thank you that the Lord Jesus has covered my sin of arrogance and pride and the way I use my mouth. I thank you that he has covered each and every sin that I have ever committed and ever will commit, and that I have the security of knowing that I have a relationship with him, come what may. But Lord, because you have been so good to me, to us, we want to please you with our lives. And we want to be daily conformed to the image of Jesus, the one who James was able to see, who was that perfect man, who always spoke the right word, always spoke with grace, seasoned with salt, for the benefit of those who hear. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And so we ask you to cleanse us from our sin. Forgive our sin. And help us, Lord, to begin to use our tongues for your glory and not our own. I pray that there are some here right now who are transacting with you, who are from their hearts praying to you, acknowledging that they have sinned in so many ways we can't count and we need not count because one sin is enough to separate us from you. We have all sinned and stumbled in so many ways that only the blood of Jesus could cover it. I pray that there are some who are availing themselves of the gift of his blood right now. They're coming to you in faith, believing who he is and what he did, and that you'll begin your work of change in them from the inside out for your glory. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.